Episode 50 of the Vincast is merely weeks away and you, the listener, can get involved with the podcast and actually be on the show. It's an opportunity for listeners to share their own wine stories and experiences, share their impressions of the podcast, or even ask myself, the intrepid wino, aka James Gersbrook, any questions you might want to ask about me or about wine in general. So all you need to do is uh, email me at thevincast at gmail.com or come to intrepidwino.com, send me a message there, or even on social media, get in contact because then I can liaise a time that you can uh, link up via Skype and be on the podcast. Only weeks away, so do get in quick. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I do hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Nathan Earle. And if you did, that you uh, then went and watched every episode of Plonk on YouTube, uh, and you also are possibly attending one of the Wine Communicators of Australia seminars where all three of the stars of the show will actually be talking about the making of the show and how it uh, can help uh, improve the image of Australian wine. Now, for this week, I actually uh, contacted uh, someone I met a few years ago uh, via Twitter, I think it was. Uh, his name is uh, Damien Wilson, and he actually has a PhD in wine marketing. And uh, I thought it would be an interesting opportunity to talk about the academic side of wine business studies. Uh, obviously, with previous guests, winemakers, they've talked about their experiences studying winemaking, but myself uh, included, there are people who actually study at an academic level uh, wine, wine business and wine marketing. So I had Damien call in where, uh, from Burgundy, uh, Dijon, in fact, where he actually is teaching wine marketing to future wine business professionals. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, please do get in contact with us if you did, and I'll see you on the other side. Damien, thank you for joining me all the way from uh, Burgundy. Uh, I think it's um, pretty early in the morning. It's uh, end of the day for me here, but uh, thank you very much for making some time. Oh, uh, thanks very much, James. And uh, you know, from your perspective, I know it's it's the end of the day on a Friday. It's uh, uh, very kind of you to stick around, even though I've just come in. I'm uh, drinking my coffee and sitting in my office and uh, eating uh, quite possibly the best croissant in the world. So, look, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm very happy to uh, very happy to join you. Um, so, tell me, Damien, um, as far as your kind of first introduction to wine, what was it? Um, where were you uh, in your life, uh, contextually, I guess, um, when you first kind of noticed that wine had a little bit more to offer you and thought you thought about kind of pursuing that as, as far as a career? Um, I think for, for me, everything started back when I was um, surprising. I was about four years old and this wasn't um, a wine-based thing, but it was an interest in gastronomy in essence. I'd, uh, I remember seeing uh, being a young a young boy at home watching TV and I remember seeing Bernard King make a cake on daytime TV and I remember thinking wow you know what um, uh, what this guy's done is amazing and I remember telling my parents that I wanted to be a chef and they never really got into that because they always thought that you know you wanted to do something which earned money and back in those days chefs didn't earn a great deal of money I, I think except maybe the best and so they wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer but it planted the seed for me and so when my, uh, my, as I grew older I recognized that my parents entertained a lot 
and they used to have parties and mum would always drink wine dad would always drink beer but it was it was fascinating that uh, you know whenever I, whenever dad would ask for beer he'd always just ask for a color of the can whereas mum would always ask for something to do with a grape variety or a brand or 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 it might just be the color of the box or something like that but she or, or the style of wine but she always asked for something in a far more i guess complex and technical way than number than dad's a simple um, uh, request for a beer by colour, so it just it got me interested. I think, and that's pretty much where um, uh, where the seed of interest came in for wine. It was something fascinating for me because of its uh, complexity, and there was no. Uh, I wanted to understand a bit more about that, being a, a curious young lad that I was. It's funny, like uh, I'm. I always remember my parents drinking wine, you know, and, and again, I guess this is going back to the Chateau cardboard days. By the time I think I was a teenager, they would they had graduated to, to bottles. But um, it wasn't until I started working in liquor retail and started learning a little bit about wine that I really started to go, oh, okay, they're different grape varieties. So Shiraz, Merlot, they're different grape varieties. They're going to have a different kind of taste, that kind of thing. And that was when I was like 20. Mm. So I, my, my introduction to wine came quite late. So you, you clearly from, from your mum kind of got that appreciation for differences between wine which i guess most people would just break down to white wine red wine sparkling wine and maybe sweet wine yeah it was um yeah, mum. Uh, mum was always clear. She never wanted something sweet. She'd always say, "No, don't. Just don't get the Mazelle, Damien." You know, I mean, if that, uh, uh, you know, that was uh, if there were ever, ever more than one uh, uh, box in the, in the fridge, which th- didn't happen too often. Uh, so, you know, there was always um, uh, this, this focus by mum to say she liked a dry white. That was what was mum was mum was interested in. So I kind of picked up on that. And then, as a as a teenager, my parents uh, bought a convenience store when I was living in Darwin, and of you know, of course, believing that a convenience store was um, was the best way to make money because people always needed to buy things outside of hours. And so I was fascinated by the fact that at this store, um, I mean, you, I wasn't fascinated by the fact you could sell alcohol. But again, there was that, um, that common uh, approach when people would come in and ask for beer, they'd ask for a slab of... Uh, cans by the colour, whereas if they wanted wine, they didn't, you know, you could see this blank look come across their face and they go, oh, what have you got in wine? And, you know, it was invariably, you had to go through a process of explaining to them what you had. So I could see that there was an avenue to try and engage people if you were dealing with wine, whereas beer, people sort of came in with a, with a clear idea what they wanted. And the sales process was was much more about just providing them what they were, uh, providing them what they knew they wanted instead of helping them with the decision process. And I think I've always been a bit of a people person and that um, that experience was uh, one of the key elements which made me realize that I wanted to get into the wine sector on the business side. So what sort of work did you do when you sort of I guess in your teens or in your yeah how how did you kind of um, support your your socializing your social life i guess oh it was um <laughs> that, that was that was a bit more difficult i think as you, you you probably have the same experience james as soon as you get bitten by the wine bug you start um you know it's no longer enough just to um, drink um, a basic uh, cheap shadow cardboard you know you start searching for the um uh, for the holy grail of uh, of hedonic wine experiences and so it ends up being that uh, being that progression you know you'll you'll start with something um white and dry and you know then you start drinking reds and sparkling 
things, and and then you start drinking them, um, you know, by uh, different degrees of of dryness. You discover new styles, you um, you discover new regions, new producers, wine, and all of a sudden, your your interest just grows. And for for me, that happened after I think the experience with, with my parents. Uh, unfortunately, their store went bankrupt. So it, it taught me a couple of things. Um, one that you, you can't just rely on a good idea to be successful in business. But uh, the most important thing was that, you know, without the provision of service, people aren't prepared to pay extra money for something. So um, I then went into the service industry. I made it, uh, I started off in uh, retail. I think uh, like a lot of us, I'm uh, working as a, um, a cash jockey at the um, at, at Woolworths and and then uh, got drawn into the, the service industry and started working as a commie waiter and then uh, working in uh, bars, restaurants, hotels, managing, uh, uh, you know, from, uh, sorry, from uh, the service roles to plate carrying and also um, uh, started off my chef's apprenticeship. So I was kind of trying to get into the whole uh, food and service industry and working in a number of places uh, in a number of parts of the country for almost 10 years, I felt that I had a really good idea about what uh, people were into in wine and what to, and what to get into. And it was really the only way I could support my habit because when you were uh, interested in wine, you, you're constantly spending a lot of money on something new. You're wanting to go to um, uh, wine tastings all the time. And it's all really exciting. But you, it's very difficult to afford unless you've either got a wealthy family uh, or a, um, a wealthy, sorry, some sort of wealthy benefactor, or you've got the capacity to have a high-paying job, which generally requires um, uh, academic qualifications. And after 10 years of progressing but not being able to get above the uh, the unqualified glass ceiling, uh, I uh, I decided I was going to go back and do some studies. I wanted to do this professionally and um, in a serious manner, and and so I uh, I applied to the uh, Uni of Adelaide to do the Diploma in wine marketing at uh, at Wake. Sorry, no, it wasn't at Wake Campus. It was at Roseworthy at that stage back in uh, the mid '90s. So it was um, it was a conscious decision uh, that I could see things needed uh, things needed to be done in the wine sector. People were petrified. Uh, the trade were far more interested in their own wine knowledge than the interests of the consumer. And I just thought that uh, things such as education needed to um, uh, needed to be provided for the trade, not for the consumer, to help them understand what consumers were getting into. So that led me back into my studies in the um, uh, in the uh, mid 1990s. So you hadn't done any further studies after school. No, in fact, I am. I have failed year twelve, so I I was in this situation oh, where okay. my, uh, my, my dad didn't even make it there. No, and, 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 no, and he went back and and you know got a, a law commerce degree, as in working as a lawyer for well most of my life. Yeah, sure. I mean, after um, you know, after working for ten years, uh, I realised that I couldn't get back into you know, I couldn't really get to where I wanted to go. I wanted to be in a position of authority and to have some influence over. Um, bringing people into the wine sector who could help the wine sector develop. And I didn't think that was through uh, wine knowledge, which is what people who are fascinated by wine want. They essentially end up fighting over the um, uh, the level of qualification they want, whether it's WSET or a CSW or, or focusing on trying to get them, uh, some sort of um, technical qualification in wine knowledge. And, and I think that's one of the, the challenges that we face because it's alienating the wine trade from the wine consumer because the wine consumer is generally, uh, you know, 
know, the growth in wine consumption has generally been with the increase in new consumers coming into the category. And the more knowledgeable you are in wine, the more difficult it is for you to relate to um to someone who knows nothing about it or who knows very little about it. So it and I, I wanted to make that change. So I went back to uh, education. I went back to the University of Adelaide to start my uh, diploma in uh, in wine marketing, and uh, I was very lucky. I had great some um, uh, great mentors and um, uh, lecturers there. I mean, I was there at the time of um, uh, Professor Larry Lockshin, and there was Hugh McClellan who was um, uh, running the ship at that stage as well. You know, I mean, it was really it was a good group of people who had uh, a common um, a common focus on what they wanted their graduates to uh, to achieve. And I actually and certainly remember, during that boom yeah, period for the Australian wine industry in general. Yeah. You know, there, so there was a lot of interest you know, as as wine was growing as an industry, both domestically, um, you know, and, and markets overseas as well. There would have been a lot of interest and in, in, and a push to kind of be educating, you know, future wine wine marketers, I guess. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think one of the problems we faced in the 90s is that, the, while the rest of the world was suffering, consumption was was going down the toilet. Uh, you know, Australia was growing and our export markets were booming. So there wasn't really a great focus on how this happened or, you know, what what we needed to do about it. We were, we were so madly just trying to get supply into the market. So we were, we were you know, uh, actively trying to get more winemakers and, uh, uh, and to get our wine into the market, we believed we needed the credibility of wine knowledge. So, you know, having people who are going counter to that perspective saying you need to focus on the interest of the consumer you need to look have a, have a long-term focus like uh like um, like larry and um, uh, hugh you know i mean that were, they were great mentors to help uh, people get the, uh, focused on what needed to be done and i still remember one of the most in, uh, valuable lessons i had in class and it was in uh, 1997 uh in a class on wine marketing with them with larry and i remember him talking it starting off the lecture and i was i think like a lot of young punks who start off uh, uh, with the wine business and I came in, you know, believing it was I needed to know everything about, you know, the Grand Cru Class A. I needed to know my first from second, third, fourth, and fifth growths. So I needed to know, um, I needed to know the iconic, uh, you know, occult producers who were coming up all around the world because that was fascinating stuff to me. And I remember Larry talking about uh, using a case study and introducing Jacobs Creek. And I made some pejorative remark about about the brand, going, you know, why would you drink that? And he very quickly jumped on me. He put his he, he pointed at me and he said, that's the attitude that is going to spoil the, the future of the Australian wine sector. And, you know, he, he went on to explain why. And he said, you know, here's where all the growth is. And people who are enthusiasts, they look down their nose at them at the big brands like um, Yellowtail and Jacobs Creek, and yet they're the ones who have successfully brought people into the category. What we don't know and what we've been really poor at doing is getting them from entering the category and trading up. Some people do. Uh, we don't specifically know why or how or at what stage it happens, but at some, pe- at some point, some people go from being kind of the novice entry-level consumer into being really involved in the wine, and we, we haven't done that bit well. So that's essentially what well, I... That, that, that's, it's, that's really interesting. it's really interesting because, you know, I, uh, of course, went through the, 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 a similar program uh, with Adelaide University, I guess, about 15 years later. Sorry if I'm making, that, making you feel old there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but... You know that was at at the at the point where the Australian wine um, segment, uh, sorry, the Australian wine uh, industry had been suffering a lot. You know there was um, the yeah. the combining factors of um, Australian dollar being very strong, making um, prices a lot higher, 
And then um, the global financial crisis, meaning that consumption in general, at least spending on on wine in general, had gone down. And so that was where they were kind of going. You know, we've put too much focus on on the sort of the um of of the kind of the value or the price structure. How do we how do we try and educate? particularly the export markets that Australia actually makes very high quality regionally focused wines um, and so even it's funny that even then um, there was discussion about that and you know and that was in the mid to late 90s yeah I mean by all means uh, I think we need to we, we, we need to work on improving the image of Australian wine I mean that's uh, there's no doubt there at all and that it's not an easy um, it's not an easy challenge to master um, the, the problem is we've got to be careful not to kill the golden glue, golden goose at the same time you know we've we've done a lot we've got we've got iconic brands you know I mean you go anywhere around the world and brands like Yellowtail and Jacobs Creek are known whether whether we whether we as uh, professionals like them or drink them regularly isn't the point they they're the things that have got people into the category. Um, how we get people to trade up is really a more difficult question. And I think part of the, uh, the problem with the approach we're taking is that we're focusing on the interests of the professionals. We're not looking at those people who are coming through into that category. Um, uh, bec- and by, by doing that, it's, we're, we're listening to the advice that the professionals are telling us, which may not be, um, which may not be reflective of what's happening in the market. So I think uh, the, the intention... And they're, and they're not connected with, with the, you know, the, the, the newer consumers, the, the kind there is a disconnect between, you know, the, the the opinion leaders, I guess, and the and the new the people entering into um, wine consumption. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 the real problem. I mean, you've got you know, uh, Joe Joe Public comes into wine, and you know, I mean, this is a classic scenario which you've probably you've probably come across uh, yourself. Joe Public comes in, you meet him or her at a wine tasting, and they you know they go, wow. You know, they've just discovered wine. They go, "Wow, this is great stuff." It's you know, it's really, it's really sweet. And you know, some uh, some smart uh, smart smart article turn around and you know, generally, I'm um, uh, generally trying to be nice about it. Will say, "No, no, that's fruity. Sweetness is um is different. This wine's very fruity." And you know, I mean, if you're if you've well, got the classic one, you can't smell sweetness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Any of these sorts of things, and, and they're, they're well meaning, but the problem is, is that you know, Joe Public has just come in and might have just discovered wine and has neither the experience nor the knowledge nor you know uh, nor the interest at this stage in a category they're just discovering you know they're wanting to kind of put their feet in and see how much fun it can be you know it's it's like starting a new sport or starting a new language or anything if you get chastised heavily at the start you just get dissuaded uh, whereas if you've had enough time to sort of get into it, you get a feel for it, you have some experiences and you get a few early wins, like you, you, you have uh, a friend who will kind of go, wow, you really do know or you know or you like your wine. You, your confidence is built up to a point that, you know, you can take a bit of a, uh, you can take a bit of a shellacking. But, you know, if, if you're at, a, at, a, at an event like this and, you know, your first couple of uh, uh, phrases you say and people are very quick to correct you, you lose interest in it because you just, you know, you think, hang on, this is all too hard. I thought wine was just about uh, enjoyment and fun. And and there's there's a lot around that particular idea, you know, getting people inter- interested in it. And what happens is that those people will then go off and they'll they'll continue to drink wine occasionally, but they just don't they don't put any time or investment into it. They'll just drink wine that's given to them instead of actively looking for stuff. So, what we need to do is be far more um, embracing 
for uh, for those newer consumers. And, and the problem with the um, uh, with the wine trade is that because it's very competitive, there's not much money in it. Uh, people who are in it are adamant that you know they are the ones who have the best palates or the best knowledge or you know the best future or should be listened to. Um, people don't te- they they have a lot of trouble taking those blinkers off, and so it ends up being incredibly competitive. So the newer consumer comes in, sees something complex, difficult to appreciate, using the wrong language, far too difficult. Oh, hell, I'm going to go off and drink craft beer instead. You know, no one, no one ever gives me grief about that. So it's we, we just need to be far more. Uh, we need to change our mindsets and get people um, uh, more interested in uh, uh, in wine. And I mean, I was lucky when I got uh, chastised uh, in that experience from Larry in my studies. I remember thinking, gosh, you know, I mean, he's he's onto something here. Uh, you know, we we really do. We're far too busy fighting amongst ourselves and not um, not um, encouraging new consumers to come in and we tell them they have to be educated well you know if I'm interested in something and I've taken the time to get in um, uh, to build up my confidence and uh, experience, if you tell me I need to be educated, I'll take that on as a challenge. But if I'm just starting and you say you need an education to get interested in this, um, uh, to, be, to be taken seriously in this category, it just ends up being too hard because you can have a hobby in something and a hobby builds on to something um, uh, bigger when you start trying to get better at it. But you need to enjoy it first before you have to start learning about it. So we've, we've got to get back to a bit of that enjoyment stuff, I reckon, James. I think what one of the biggest problems um, that we have is that people so easily confuse aspiration with elitism. Mm. And so, you know, we, 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 we all think of wine as an aspirational product and, and it is to a large mm-hmm. degree. Um, you know, if, even if you're just looking at that wine, you know, you aspire to drink wine more than you might beer, for example. Mm. Um, but, where, where particularly people in the industry uh, and to a, a certain extent the media maybe are uh, kind of getting a little bit lost is they're, they're setting wine up as an elite product or people who drink wine as elitist or they are the elite and that, that requires a level of experience and knowledge and, you know, I guess um, gross or disposable income to be, afford, uh, to be able to afford what we would consider to be better quality wines, whereas most people are quite happy in an aspirational way to to drink wine and to maybe drink drier wines rather than sweeter wines if there is a perception that dry wine is um, you know better quality, but they don't necessarily need to go beyond that, and and I think that that's where wine education, just in a you know f- between industry and consumer, there's going to be a little bit of breakdown communication. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a I think that's a really good point because you know we've we've known for the better part of uh, about twenty years that you know the consumer it doesn't matter how many categories of consumers you think they are but they they all start off as uh, you know novices or neophytes whatever you want to call them and then they either go on and they uh, they, they tend to come to a crossroads and, and you know they aspire to get into into wine what we don't know is how long that uh, apprenticeship is and what what gets them to that point and that's what we have to work on and the problem is we we put up this uh, iconography you know this some of this this uh, picture of the connoisseur as being the ultimate aim. And for those of us who, who are bitten by the wine bug, you know, we, we might have a burgundy which blows our mind one day and we just go, wow, and we spend the rest of our life, you know, throwing good money after bad, just hoping to relive that experience. And, you know, it's almost like a drug. It's this whole kind of, oh, wow, you know, I just, I've got that cherry high thing and I want to get back to it again. And, yeah, but for those people who haven't had that, wine's just, you know, it's just uh, a beverage to share with friends. It's all part of the social experience. So, you know, if we can get away from that kind of, 
of uh, um, uh, focus on every wine experience has to be the best that, that it can possibly be, then I think we'll start to get our head around the idea about what other reasons that people drink wine. It's not just about that uh, that uh, peak um, hedonic experience. So, you know, I think it's the sort of thing we, um, uh, we, we really um, – I, I love the fact that being from Australia, you tend to be far more uh, egalitarian in your um, in your outlook in, in, in every element of, uh, of life, and I really enjoy that. We don't have a lot of the – um, a lot of the protocols that you have, you're expected to adhere to in in Europe. So we've got the potential. I think it's just the um, uh, it's just the desire at the top level to kind of recognise this is the way that we can um, uh, this is the way we can encourage it and be more embracing rather than sort of making it um you know being disparaging if someone you know um, chooses a wine which uh, which just got a 13 out of 20 instead of um instead of a gold medal at the um at the local wine show. You know that that sort of thing is just just becomes divisive and we really should be avoiding that at all costs. So we, we, I guess we um, both had that kind of experience of going through academic studies for for wine business, wine marketing, but we've come, we came from slightly different backgrounds because I had a bit of an academic background and then worked for a winery, whereas you were on the trade side of things. Did you find it difficult to kind of adjust into that academic um, side of the business? Um, yes, and I'd, I'd say, to be honest, I'm probably still not the best adapted to um, to the academic uh, field. Um, <laughs> I'm, I just, I have a, a tendency to be outspoken, which uh, you know doesn't in, engender a lot of uh, a lot of confidence and support in um, in, in peers. Uh, but I, I also find that there is a. I love the knowledge. I love the philosophy. I love discussing things. Um, academics get a bad rap in that their work isn't uh, practically uh, applicable. And I mean, I, I heard the stories when I was thinking about getting into academia. I was still in Australia at this stage. And, you know, a lot of people in the trade were saying to me, you know, I mean, there's that um, uh, well-spoken phrase, those who can do, those who can't teach. And I'd, I'd come from, I'd had a and lot of success. Those who can't teach, teach Jim. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so it's 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 such a shame that we just don't have that uh, expectation or respect in um, in Australia for what academics are doing. And I agree, a lot of them do things they don't do themselves um, uh, justice because the research they uh, are working on may have no long term a uh, long term practical element that um, that practitioners can take on board. But quite frankly, I mean, in the wine sector in particular, I think there's a lot of research going on in the business side with limited funds. I might add, there, there's a lot of funds that go uh, of the research funds they go into viticulture and and uh, winemaking they not a lot comes into uh, the business side of things and that's really business's fault because we haven't done a lot to show that there are rules there are uh, outcomes that are that are clear and and uh, uh, and obvious and when they are we don't communicate them very well you know we we sit back and chastise the um, uh, the wine sector for not paying attention to what we're doing instead of uh, getting out there and saying look here is this, here are the sort of things that you can take on board you apply these rules and they work so. With, without that um, uh, funding, we're, you know, we're not really going to uh, going to uh, advance the uh, interests of wine business. But for me, coming into the um, coming into the sector, it was a bit difficult because I was very much a ha- hands-on person. I'd had a number of experiences. I was uh, very familiar with the concept of service and the value that it uh, it afforded any business in the wine sector, and I. W- I still, to this day, uh, have uh, desires to get back into the um, into the commercial sector. But there are just so many advantages in being involved in academia and seeing uh, what changes I've been able to enact in a relatively short period of time, and what the future holds. And I'd like to be a part of that because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, with the wine trade. 
I find being dominated by people who are far more interested in being wine experts rather than um, rather than uh, sociologists. It's really good if you actually uh, have a program which says, "Look, let's just focus on the business. Let's look at the um, uh, let's look at the empirics of business practices. Let's look at what works as a selling tool. You know, I mean, when do you use uh, when do you rely on the use of awards as a way to get into a market? When do you rely on the use of uh, a critical review as a way to improve your sales? You know, when do you rely on um, a journalist um, a journalistic coverage or advertising and those sorts of things? And we know how these things work. The problem is that most of the trade uh, and in particular producers. They don't know that information, and most of them just either don't have faith in it, or they just feel that they're better off spending money um, investing in barrels and um, hoping that you know the quality will get the wine sold. Whereas, you know, I mean, that's we know that's that essentially there is very little relationship between an extra dollar invested into a new barrel and what that's going to end up being on the bottom line. So it's it's really. Um, the opportunity to uh, to make that change, I'm willing to kind of put my square peg into the round hole of academia and try and make a uh, make a change. And I'm learning and getting better at it. But uh, uh, administration has never really been my forte. I'm far more interested in uh, in communication and education. So that's essentially where I've been able to fit my um, my background and my experiences using cases um, as as a way to teach uh, as a as as an effective way to try and inspire and educate the um, uh, the new entrance into the wine sector uh, just coming back to what you're talking about as far as sort of industry support for um academia or in, in terms of research uh, as far as um the wine market wine business and 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 wine consumers one of the biggest problems i think that there is is the fragmented nature of the wine industry in general mm. you know when you know whether it's in the old world where you've got you know thousands and thousands of producers mm. who are all just kind of doing their thing um, or, you know, in the new world where you've got some small producers who are doing their thing and you've got bigger brands who everyone sort of is self-serving in, in their own way. Like they're, mm. the, any kind of investment they're going to make is, is purely into their business. You know, there's going to be a certain amount of community support and, and kind of wanting to improve the um, the, the impression of wines from this region or from this country mm. um but there, there's no kind of there's well there's very little cooperation as far as let's all come together as a category wine needs to invest more in consumer behavior and how to connect and communication strategies that kind of thing mm. in an effort to increase market share against our competitors you know other alcoholic beverages or non-alcoholic beverages that kind of thing um and so you would expect that um, larger organizations, whether it is, um, you know, for example, uh, the champagne, um, the, the broad champagne regional, um, body or whether it's more governmental, um, levies would be going towards that. But producers don't think, you know, ironically, considering, you know, they're planting vineyards, which may not, you know, um, be providing them with with exceptional fruit for 15 or 20 years or you know it takes them three or four years to convert to organic viticulture that kind of thing mm. they're thinking a lot more short term and, and and how you can actually make a living rather than investing into um you know how to be better marketers at the, at the end of the day that i think that that's always going to be an issue and a challenge 
Yeah, the, the structure of the uh, the wine sector doesn't help its cause, particularly when you look at you know, the, the raw numbers uh, in Australia, for example. I mean, you look at the – of the wine exported from Australia, 99% of the volume comes from 1% of the producers by number. So, you know, I mean, you've got 2,481 wine producers in Australia, according to um, uh, Wine Biz Stats 2015. Um, so basically what you're saying is, uh, you know, 24 of them, the 24 biggest producers are pretty much responsible for getting all of that wine out into the into the the export market and we know from uh we know from the uh double jeopardy law it's a bit, it's a bit like the 80 20 rule isn't it yeah it is except it's even more extreme than we could possibly imagine you know wine in that case uh, for that particular example is you know far more um uh, a far greater difference in um, in concentration than you could uh, than you could imagine in any other um, category so you know you've got this situation we know from the double jeopardy rule that if you invest money into something or if a market grows the bigger brands benefit to a greater degree than the smaller ones so of course an industry based um, investment in business skills is by definition going to benefit the bigger producers more than the smaller ones. And, you know, I mean, that's in a standard market with a market that's so much bigger uh, like that. So, of course, you're going to have, you know, two, what is it, 2,457 of these wine producers, all these tiny producers who represent 1% of Australia's number of wine exports um, out there, you know, volume of Australian wine exports out there going, no way are we going to invest money into this sort of thing because all of the money that we would put into it is basically going to go on to benefit the big producers. So why on earth would we do that? So, it it does make it a really uh, a really big challenge. So you know, I mean, the um, uh, the uh, AGWA, I think it is now the, um, under the under the new branding, they're uh, they've got a big challenge in being able to show how they can come up with them, uh, with directions which are going to favour the small producers and get them involved. Because I mean, the big producers not only do they benefit based on um, standard market principles, but the big producers often have their own marketing department as well, so they have people who are who are dedicated exactly. to this role. You know, the small producer they can't even they can't even they're struggling to make money. I think I saw recently um, uh, the ABC report was saying seventy percent of uh, wine producers are unprofitable in Australia at the moment. So. They're all, they're basically mainly your smaller producers. I'm going to assume. I mean, I, I didn't get into too much detail on that. But if you've got, I think that was actually that was that was it was grape growers rather than wine producers. Grape growers. Okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, so you're talking about these um uh, these guys who are struggling. They they can't even make money. Um, why on earth are they going to invest money into them uh, into a category which where they're seeing a greater uh, division of resources going to the top end of the market anyway? So you know it's when they when they can't make money, where could they come up with them? Uh, enough money to pay for someone to help them out with their business skills. It's just not available. So the, the wine sector either has to, if they rely on pure market um, uh, market economics alone, then there's going to be a huge clear out in the wine sector. And I don't think anyone wants that. Um, but if, they, if they're not going to and they're going to provide some support, they have to deliberately and actively uh, look at ways that they can benefit the small producer to give them some tools to help them get back in the game, uh, but not doing it at the expense of the big producers who are both them stronger, uh, independent, and they can lobby more effectively to be able to um, uh, to be able to stop something like that happening. So you know we've we've got to we, we've got to um, uh, go back to that Australian sense of mateship and say look how can we all help each other to grow the size of the pie rather than just trying to um, rather than just trying to uh, beat each other over the head for um, uh, for bigger pieces of the same size market. So that's the, I think that's really the goal. The goal is for, to figure out how as a sector we can grow the pie to a greater degree and try and um, uh, get a better um, division of uh, resources um, uh, down to the um, uh, down to the smaller size producer.
Jeez, Dan, I mean, I don't know how long you've been in France, Paul, but that certainly sounds a lot like socialism to me. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does help. I, I mean, as I said, from a purely market, see, if I was a, if I was a staunch um, <laughs> um, uh, capitalist, I'd just turn around and say, uh, and playing devil's advocate here, I think one of the problems is Australia's um, number of wine producers grew from, according to, um, uh, what is it, our stats? I'm trying to think of them, uh, not the ABS. The, um, uh, at that stage, it was the Grape and, uh, Grape and Brandy Corporation. Uh, you're going back to the mid-80s. Yeah, going back to the mid-80s, there were 380 wine producers in Australia. Now there are, you know, 2,500 or, or thereabouts, according to wine stats. I've, I'm, I say according to wine stats because we've had this discussion recently online about how many producers there are, and the, the numbers seem to be um, – uh, I seem to be underestimating how many producers there are. But if there were 380-odd back in the mid-1980s, and there are now, you know, 2,500, that's like, uh, what, an uh, almost eight-fold increase. Um, it hasn't been at the top end of the market. The same big producers that were around in the mid-80s are pretty much the same big producers now. Some of them have been rebadged, some of them have been consolidated, but they're pretty much the same group of people. So all the growth has come at the tiny end of the market. So we've basically got, you know, an addition of more than 2,000 new small producers. And what does a small producer make? They don't make um, uh, entry-level, uh, novice-drinking, appealing, um, a simple um, standard um, wine. They make wine for enthusiasts. Now, as I explained earlier on, that's not where the market growth has been. So the fault in the wine sector has been a focus on um, – uh, we've had a huge um, increase in the number of tiny producers, which as a wine lover, I love. I reckon that's fantastic. But they're not sustainable, certainly not, um, uh, and, uh, certainly not in the market, and they had no business plan. So they invested a lot of money to produce premium quality wine in a market where there was no growth, and so they're forced to drop their price. So the reason that they're uncompetitive is because they came in with the wrong product in the first place, whether I like the product or not. So, of course, as a, sta- if, as a staunch capitalist, I would say they came in with the wrong thing. They suffered the consequences. But as an Australian as a, and as someone who uh, is a firm believer in giving everyone a fair go, I think we do need to look at ways of being able to, um, of being able to keep those who, are, um, who uh, can maintain um, a solvency in their business, keep them afloat, whereas um, some of those who are just um, either – not uh, endorsing the um, uh, the image that is required of the Australian wine sector, or who uh, who are the least um, competitive, will probably just have to be left by the wayside. So, I'm 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 aware that there are two ways to go in the um, in the equation. As a sympathiser, I'd like to see everyone get up, but as a um, capitalist, I'd like to say, well, we just need to have a um, we need to have a uh, uh, what do you call it? We need to have a, um, a rationalisation of the wine sector, and that's not really going to make anyone happy. I wouldn't have thought. Wine Darwinism, really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very, very good way of looking at it. So it's, it's a, it's not an easy question to answer, James. So how did you end up um, in in France teaching in uh, in Dijon? Well, that was uh, that's probably an easier explanation. I think as anyone who is a wine lover. You, whether it's right or not is not the question. The fact is, as a wine lover, you look to France as sort of the reference. You know, France is, um, uh, France is responsible for the world's greatest wines. And, and you know, as I, as I, I try to put in it as, as a disclaimer, um, whether that's right or not is not the question. It's the perception around the world. You know, I mean, we, um, uh, Chin Ma did this great um, across um, a national study uh, in 2008. And it indicated that if basically if you're a wine producing nation, most consumers in that nation tend to favour their own wines over anyone else's. Uh, but 
if for the non-wine producing nations, they always look at French as being the best. And even for the wine producing nations, they almost always look at French as being the second best behind their own wine. So, so the perception is still there that French is the best, whether that's true or not. So when I came into the category... And, and, I started, and what's interesting yeah. is that even in, in large <laughs> wine markets like United States or in the uh, United Kingdom, even, mm. though wine might, even though French wine <laughs> might re- not represent the largest volume, it's still the perception that the French wine is the best. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, whereas in a dollar per, uh, you know, dollar per liter, I think New Zealand still got them, uh, still got uh, France aced in that in that level of the market as well. And you know, New Zealand's that um, is that uh, very um, uh, quietly smug uh, little uh, producer in the South Pacific, going, "People pay good money for our wines, and we've got our own problems." But you know, we don't have to worry so much about the volumetric side of things because we've got a reputation as being a premium producer. Got to give them something. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're good like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, for, for me, the, the appeal of France was like I could not understand as I was going through my studies, wine consumption in France was still plummeting. You know, it was it was going down. And this, to me, was absolutely amazing. How could the country that produces the best wine in the world um, be suffering to such an extent that their um, uh, wine consumption had dropped uh, almost 70 percent in um, in a matter of about 20 years? You know, so, I mean, that's that's a huge, a huge change in a short period of time. So I, I really wanted to be a part of that. And I thought if you could if you could if anyone could be involved in solving the riddle of why um, uh, of what's happened in France, then really you've, you've got the skills to be able to take on uh, any challenge in the wine sector. And that's a essentially what brought me here in the first place. I wanted to be a part of, uh, 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 I wanted to understand how it had happened, what went uh, what went on, what the challenges were that um, any country um, suffering a dip would be facing. And uh, after nine years here and starting off in the west of France, where I was in uh, in the Loire, I was in Angers for a couple of years before coming over to Burgundy. I've, I've, had, I've lived the experience of being a wine hedonist and, um, uh, and, uh, and being in Burgundy for, se- for almost seven years, as well as being in a, in a region which is more renowned for um, a Producing uh, volume um, uh, volume wines and and struggling with the um, uh, with the lack of awareness of their um, of their image and uh, perception in the market. So it's really it's been a brilliant experience. That's what brought me over here. I can tell you for sure. Uh, not only being an academic, but also being in France, it certainly wasn't uh, coming over here for the money. Now, of course, you are a doctor, Damien. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure you uh, have your PhD. What What did you actually um, you you What was your thesis on? Uh, the retrospective identification of wine consumption patterns. So uh, what I did is. I figured out a way to ask people over the history of their life to recall their patterns of uh, patterns of consumption, and we did it across alcohol categories. It wasn't just wine; it was uh, beer, spirits, and uh, yeah, light and heavy beer and spirits as well. And we identified a way that people could recall their patterns of behaviour reliably and co- across. Um, sorry correlated them to the events that took place in people's lives to identify where those changes took place in people's lives, where they became wine drinkers, when they changed from category to another and those sorts of things. And so it was, it was, it's kind of been part of my life's work in research to try and identify that demo, that process of, of adoption and changing from being someone who drinks wine to someone who constantly seeks the, um, uh, the the better wine event, you know, going from being an uninvolved to being an in, an involved consumer. And so that's uh, what my research has been on since then. So I've, uh, I started with, um, started with Larry when I did my diploma, which became a degree, which uh, became the first honours degree in wine marketing uh, with the Uni of Adelaide as well, and then went to uh, 
UniSA to do a master's in uh, um, business and then finished up with a PhD. So I, I work concurrently throughout all my studies as well. I, I was constantly in, you know, working at places like the Wine Underground in Adelaide um, just to, to maintain a focus on both the premium end of the market and working in retail to get a feel for how people come into it and, um, and where they go. So I've, I've tried my best to sort of get that um, now, At uh, what point did you actually um, make the decision that – at what point did you make the decision that academia was the path you wanted to follow rather than kind of um, focusing on the industry itself or going back into um, the, the industry? Uh, I think because I, as an educator, you've got the capacity to um, to have uh, interaction with a great number of people. And what I saw is that a lot of the influences in the wine sector were mainly the big companies, and the big companies often had their own um, uh, often had their own vested interest. I mean, you know, a good case in point is say um, you know the world's biggest wine retailer, Tesco. Uh, they, their information is generally uh, fairly well hidden. Their practices and how they've managed to get to that position is something that they guard um, uh, they guard very um, uh, uh, very well. Whereas as an as an academic, you are both obliged and encouraged to exchange and to investigate them, uh, uh, different ways of uh, different ways of learning and sharing information. So it's it's really it's one of the things which got my uh, interest. I felt that being on the side of the sector where you are encouraged to try and inform and educate uh, over as many um, you know as wide a part of the wine sector as possible was a far more uh, effective way potentially to be influential in trying to um, get the wine sector to change than it would be if i was um, uh, than i than if i was you know uh, a senior buyer at um, uh, at Woolworths or uh, or you know or one of the other uh, big producers who tend to be far you know better at um, at guarding their information. So that's essentially it's 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 more of an altruistic um, uh, perspective, but it's also one of the things that I find really attractive is as an academic. If you can get your foot in the door, it tends to be a lot easier to have interactions with people. Whereas as soon as you take on a commercial interest, you your network tends to close up. It becomes much more difficult to meet, to interact, to um, uh, to connect with them or with other people in the sector. And so whilst I'm both enjoying and whilst I think there's still a lot more to learn in uh, the different dynamics of the wine sectors around the world, I'm much happier sticking on this side of the, um, on this side of the panel. And so, you know, essentially that's what, um, that's what uh, I'm going on to. I'm doing my best to try and bring the, uh, bring leadership into education and to help uh, encourage the future uh, professionals in the wine sector to take on a perspective that's far more embracing rather than divisive. And how do you approach the daunting task of uh, of educating future wine professionals as a, a wine business professor yourself? Uh, in this, in the seven years that I've been running this uh, wine business program in Burgundy, uh, I have to tell you I've learned a few things. But but one of the most um, challenging is that when you get new people coming into this um, uh, coming into the wine sector it is very difficult to get them to uh, to open their eyes and to accept new information when it challenges what they already know and one of the challenges at, in, uh, at higher education is you've got people with masters degree um, you know at, at master's level so they've either got honors degrees or they've been studying for a long period of time or they've coming in with them professional um, professional experience 
And as individuals, we are driven by our own experiences. We don't tend to accept those of others because we use our own lens to um, to reflect on how other people behave. And so what we tend to find is that people who come into the wine sector at this level, they've had such experience in and with other people uh, professionally in the wine sector that that's what drives their opinions on wine. So when you present um, people to uh, these new students, statistics that suggest that, you know, things like the screw cap is not the, um, uh, the devil incarnate. Uh, or that um, you know wine consumers uh, love uh, yellowtail, or uh, or, the, or these sorts of things. You know they are very quick to dismiss that as an exception because they've never come across that before because of the people they talk to, who are usually the icons, the enthusiasts, the um, uh, other professionals in the wine sector. Tell them otherwise. You know so when you've got such a um, you know you've got a group of intelligent um, individuals who have been fashioned in a way that has formed them to believe that their focus should be on you know, uh, the, the uh, brilliance and the wonder and the diversity of uh, wine that is available, telling them a story that, yes, that's, that's important, but it's such a tiny portion of it. You have to look at the commercial relevance. You have to look at the um, market dynamics. You have to look at uh, processes of growth in, um, in markets and those sorts of things. They, they're very quick to dismiss them because they've got – examples of where businesses have been successful taking another path. And as you said before, the, you know, the wine sector is so fragmented because it's easy enough to find an example of where you can be an enthusiast and you can be an expert and you can just focus on fine wines and you can be successful. Well, it's very easy to dismiss the fact that most of the wine sector doesn't, um, doesn't run that way. Sorry, educating them. Um, no, uh, educating. And Sorry, James. I was just saying that I'm um, educating those students and trying to get them to recognize that they have to be able to separate their own perspective and their own interests, which uh, they can keep, but they've got to be able to make money by, um, uh, by looking at the interests of the sector in general. That's um, uh, getting that balance right and getting them to, them to both um, uh, uh, accept and buy into that, um, that strategy is probably the biggest challenge I'm facing. I guess, uh, you know, I was somewhat fortunate in, in my experience when I um, went back and, 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 and did the um, postgraduate studies um, that I hadn't had that real kind of hardcore wine background. You know, I started off working just in a liquor land store mm. and then I went to, you know, a medium-sized, well-regarded brand winery, which wasn't considered to be very commercial but you know wasn't kind of part of the the elite um and and therefore when i came into the academic or the, the wine business studies i had a pretty open-minded without even being aware of it at the time i think um you know because i i i met you know my fellow, fellow students and a lot of them had been in the industry, you know, pretty much the same amount of time as I had, but who had completely different experiences. And when we were doing um, sensory evaluation um, components of our studies and like tasting tasting wines, looking at wines, particularly blind, I was just completely out of my depth. You know, I, mm. I had so such little experience with, um, you know, imported wines, for example, um, or, you know, I, I had a very parochial kind of a seller palette really. And, mm. and so that kind of allowed me to come at it with, with a much more blank slate, I guess, to then kind of look at it. And, and, I, and so that makes, makes me, I guess, a, a little bit more accepting of, of the, the industry in general. Mm. Whereas, you know, a lot of, a lot of my wine friends, industry friends, kind of do look down on that that other side of the business which you know i don't necessarily 
I'm not connected to it, but I accept that it is a, a part of it, a very important part of of wine because you'd never have a wine market if you, if people weren't being introduced to wine at that lower end. Yeah, that's and that's um, I, I've taken on a quite a different approach. I used to be a lot more of a, an evangelist for um, for wanting to get people to adjust their mentality. But I'm actually a much better listener these days, and I think that's that's probably made me a better educator as well. Because you you, you tend to find just from what you're saying, I, I still get those um uh, you know th- those discussions, and instead of uh, actively trying to get out there and changing people's opinions, it's, it's very difficult. You can't argue with someone's opinion. You can argue facts, but you know I mean uh, opinion. Is, is another matter altogether. And so when I, I tend to listen a lot more and try and um, uh, look for opportunities to get people to, um, uh, to reflect on their own perspective rather than, um, uh, rather than sort of saying to them, did you know the evidence is contrary to what you believe? Because even if you've got facts on your side, when you've got a, you know, you, you, these sorts of discussions usually take place in a crowd of wine enthusiasts. And even if you've got facts on your side, you can present to people, well, here's the, um, uh, here's the counterpoint. When the people you're saying that to are surrounded by others who agree with their, um, their personal opinion, it's very difficult to get people to see another way, even if you've got them um, facts, ba- um, uh, facts basing it up. And I've, I've found that with education as well. The, the French tend to have a far more... Uh, they're far more focused on the chalk and talk approach of education and believe that, um, you know, unless students are in the classroom listening to lecturers, they're not learning as much. So you spend a lot more time face to face with students in this part of the world than I would in Australia. And, you know, you can talk to people uh, individually who might be receptive to the idea that students should be more, uh, you know, should be given more independence, should be encouraged to do things outside of the classroom, should be encouraged to reflect and discuss. Um, uh, but as soon as you get people in a group, that um, that whole individual belief and openness disappears out the window behind the group mentality that it's all about getting a lot of um, focus in class. And so, you know, it's these getting um, changing opinions of the masses is really really difficult. You need to, you, you can't do it independently. You know, I mean, it's one thing being a maverick, but you've got to have that critical mass of people supporting it, and they've got to be influential people who support the view before people start changing their own perspective. And so, you know, now I've got to the stage where there have been enough graduates coming out of this program who are taking on a different approach, who are starting to, you know, they're progressing very quickly through their um, uh, their jobs in in their careers. They're getting good jobs. They're getting asked for, for jobs. And I've got other students from other programs who will contact me and say, uh, I've just been, I can't find a job. I've just found this opportunity where I can do an internship in Germany where I don't get paid and I'll be there for six months. So should I take it? You know, uh, that I can really see that difference now. So I'm starting to believe more strongly in the approach that's being taken, but I need more uh, advocates out there on the ground who are backing up the idea that we need to change our perspective because it's very difficult because being a wine expert and enthusiast and um, you know being regarded well amongst your peers i i appreciate the um, uh, the satisfaction that people get from that you know i mean that's that's a, it's a hard thing to fight against but you know getting people to be uh, we we've got to have the wine interests um, uh, the wine sector's interests at heart here and by creating more wine enthusiasts is just, is going the wrong way about it so uh, slowly but surely james if i can get enough people um, enough people on side the message will uh, the message will, uh, will will change and the system you know the titanic was very slow in them um, in turning, as they say, and so uh, we, we tend to find that as soon as you get, as soon as you break enough Rome hole, um, what Rome wasn't built in one day. 
No, exactly. So it just takes time. So it's um, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm seven years into the um, uh, into the journey at the moment of having some degree of influence, and uh, that uh, I'm hoping that by the time I get to ten, I'll be able to actually see and measure a bit of the change that's taking place. Excellent. Well, um, that sounds like uh, quite a daunting but um, very important task that you are continuing to uh, endeavour with. Uh, so, and and I do appreciate you. Uh, like I said, making some time to to be on the Vincast and uh, and introduce your perspective to the listeners. So thank you very much. Oh no, no problems at all, James. Always always happy to help out, and I'm uh, look forward to following the um, the Vincast and the, um, uh, the 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 stories that that come into it in the um, in the weeks, months, and years to come. So uh, come back and see me in three years' time. We'll see what happens. And uh, if people want to follow you um, and, and sort of find out where what you're up to and where you are, um, what's the best way for them to do that on social media? I'm very uh, I'm very active on social media, and I, but I tend to stick to three uh, three different interfaces, I, I, and and play around a little bit with uh, with others and nuances they come up. And that's uh, my LinkedIn profile, which um, uh, has a number associated with it. So just look up Damien Wilson on LinkedIn, and you should be able to find the the wine business professor in Burgundy. Um, I tweet more frequently than ever at uh, Wine Biz Prof, and that's Wine B U S, as in short for business. I really probably should have made that B-I-Z, but I didn't. Uh, Wine Biz Prof. And uh, also on Facebook, I have a, a professional profile that's attached to the um, uh, the School of Wine and Spirits business in Burgundy. Fantastic. Um, well, I uh, look forward to catching up with you somewhere in the world at some point in the future. Yeah, well, with some luck, I might be back for AWITC again in 2016. That's in Adelaide, and I'll make a point of coming through coming through Melbourne, James. And if you're still there, you can find that cafe in North Melbourne, I'll, um, I'll, I'll grab you a coffee. Thanks, Damien. And thank you very much, guys, for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Intrepid Wino and follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino is my Facebook page. And come to IntrepidWino.com to listen to every episode of The Vincast as well as read some of my writings and tasting notes. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or even Player FM. And when you do that, please do rate and review the podcast. Uh, share your thoughts, which episodes you liked, which guests you enjoyed listening to, and any ideas you may have to improve the podcast. Remember to get in contact via thevincast at gmail.com if you would like to be part of the 50th episode. But And you can ask me any questions you might want to answer. But until next time, bye.